As we were singing that last song, I was thinking about the fact where it says, for such a worm as I. And when we read a phrase like that, we recognize that um, compared to God, we are like a worm. Now, some of you may like worms digging in the dirt and seeing them squirm around, but compared to us, they're not significant, right? They're small, they're, to some of us, disturbing, and um, of seemingly little value. And yet God has redeemed us, God has saved us, and the only appropriate response that we can give is to give ourselves away in service to him. How many of you have been ever going and uh, you've seen a, a beautiful picture, maybe at a garage sale, maybe at a home goods kind of store, and you see an amazing picture? Maybe it's a sunset, maybe it's a landscape, maybe it's a picture of some kind of flower or animal, just something that strikes you that is amazing and beautiful and I wish I had a spot for it in my house or I'm going to make a spot for it in my house. And then you look a little closer and you look at the frame around the picture and you say, wow, that frame really doesn't go with that picture. Not even that it has to look brand new or be without some kind of blemish because sometimes pictures are framed well with old weathered wood or, or something that has just minor flaws in it and, and, but they fit with the picture, with the painting. But sometimes there's, there's ones that you say, you know, that just doesn't go together. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, there is that question. Is your life a frame for the truth about God and the gospel that matches what that gospel is? Or does your life take away from the truth and beauty of the gospel because it doesn't fit with what that message is about? The reason that I say that, and turn to Titus 2 with me if you're not there, is that we see at the end of verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. At the end of verse 8, having nothing bad to say about us. And at the end of verse 10, that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Our lives should frame the gospel in such a way that there is no basis for people to speak badly of it, that it adds to rather than taking away from it, and that it does not bring dishonor to it. What does that look like in the context of the church? Paul has been writing this letter to instruct Titus, and so he starts out this chapter in verse 1 to speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. And then he's going to go into what those things fitting for sound doctrine look like, and he's going to describe the sorts of relationships that we see in the church, that we ought to see in the church. He starts out by appealing to older men. They are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Why is it important for older men to be temperate? Well, the word temperate there sometimes uh, is used in the context of not being a drunk, but it also, in this context, I think is probably primarily focused on being sober. 
that they would be serious about the things of God, that they would be sober in following after God and setting an example in that way, that they would be dignified. There is a time and a place for a grandfather to joke with his, his grandkids and have fun with them and that sort of thing. But there's something that strikes us as odd if you see an older person behaving as immaturely as a teenager or as a toddler, right? There's just something that doesn't fit about that. And that's what Paul is instructing Titus to teach older men to avoid. The word sensible we could also understand as prudent. Uh, when I read the word prudent, um, I was joking with my wife the other day. I said, when I see the word prudent, I think of the verse in Proverbs, the prudent person sees the evil and avoids it. I think of getting stuck behind the smart bus going up and down John R. Because you, you see it, you see the traffic starting to slow down, and you've got a narrow window to get another lane, or you're going to be stuck for an extra five minutes, and that's just a fact of life. Prudence is like that. You look out for things that are going to be either small difficulties, like your trip taking longer, or much larger difficulties, like the course of your life being ruined. So, as an older man, do you watch out for things that will shipwreck your life? that will destroy the course of your life? Or did they just come up on you suddenly and you're overwhelmed by them? Sound in faith. This idea of being sound in something is uh, a phrase that Paul uses several times in this letter. Uh, he wants them to be uh, sound in faith in verse 13 of chapter 1. It's this idea of, it's a faith that is godly, appropriate, worthy. It is a faith that is true. Are they sound in faith? But not only in faith, but also in love and in perseverance. Because someone could say, I have faith, but if they don't have love, if their lives are not marked by that love, there's a sense in which their faith is shown to be, if not a lie, at least inadequate, right? And the sort of love that we're looking at here is not the sort of love that says, this person makes me feel good, so I want to do things to make them happy, and sort of a shallow kind of a love. It's a love like Jesus had that says, whatever is best for the other person, I am willing to sacrifice of myself and love in that way. And Paul calls older men in the church to show that kind of love. Why is perseverance so important? Perseverance primarily in faith, but just in general. Because there's a natural sense in which those who are younger look up to those who are older, and in the same way that it would be foolish for an older man to act immature like a child, there is also something heartbreaking and faith-withering about someone who claims to know God and they gets late in life and just sort of goes off the deep end. They abandon the faith. They live in open sin. They destroy their testimony before those who are watching them. And so Paul admonishes older men to persevere and set an example in doing so. And then he comes to verse 3. He doesn't jump immediately to younger men. That comes a little bit later in the passage. He goes then to older women. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine teaching what is good. Reverent in their behavior probably primarily would be reverence toward God, but just generally acting in a way that would be appropriate to the situation. 
What are they not supposed to be? Malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. What is gossip? Gossip is repeating information about someone for the sake of building yourself up and making them look bad. One of the primary dangers I think we have to watch out for in the context of the church when it comes to gossip is either a genuine or a misplaced sense of wanting to minister to other people's needs. If someone comes to you and says, here's what's going on in my life, and then you say in prayer meeting on Wednesday night, hey, did you know this is going on in so-and-so's life? There's, two possi- there's three possibilities. One is you do it because you genuinely want to see prayer for them, and ideally they have given you the okay to repeat that. Secondly, you blurt it out without thinking about the consequences, And thirdly, you blurt it out knowing full well what the consequences will be, that that person's reputation will be damaged by the thing that you have said about them. There are people who who build a reputation for themselves as being in the know and being up on the latest news and all those sorts of things. And there is a very real danger that if that is the way that your life is described, particularly as an older woman in the church, You should ask yourself, have I fallen into the sin of gossip? Again, knowing what is going on in people's lives and praying fervently for them, and especially if they've said it's okay to share this with other people, then telling other people and saying you pray for them too, that honors God. Saying things that you know about someone and sort of whispering about, that does not honor God. And so Paul says to older women, Do not be a malicious gossip, wishing evil toward others. Do not be enslaved to much wine. Now, Paul could have picked any number of things because there are many things that can rule our lives and our time and our thoughts, right? And perhaps this was a particular issue on the island of Crete where he was speaking to um, uh, the church there through Titus. Verse 12 of chapter 1 says that one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So perhaps he picked addicted to much wine as being one of those things that fit with his condemnation of the the Cretan society in chapter 1 and verse 12. I don't want us to miss the broader application uh, just by reading the specific words of the text. And the specific words of the text are very important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to them. But sometimes we might look at the words of the text and says, okay, it says don't be addicted to much wine. Okay, I don't, I'm not addicted to much wine, so I'm good. There are many other things that can master our lives. Eating too much food, obsessing over how little you eat. Pouring your life into a particular hobby. Um, Saying things like, if I don't have my cup of coffee in the morning, you don't want to meet me. They say, well, what's wrong with coffee? Nothing is wrong with coffee. I don't love it personally, but there's nothing wrong with it. But if anything masters our life in such a way that we say, if I don't have that thing, I can't honor God or I will have that thing even if it dishonors God. Our lives are ruled by something, and it's not Christ. And so we have to watch out for that, and Paul specifically admonishes older women 
not to be enslaved to things, particularly wine in this passage. Instead, he urges them to teach what is good. And we look at this and we say, well, Paul, aren't you the guy that said in Timothy that women aren't supposed to teach, they're supposed to sit quietly in the service? Without going into all the explanation of that passage where he was making a different sort of point, Paul, I think, had a very clear sense that men and women alike have a responsibility to teach truth to other men and women. Specifically in this context, men set an example for men, women set an example for women, and that's what ought to be happening. Because I think, as we'll see in the next few verses, where do we often get our advice about things? From people who are our peers. At least when we're younger, right? Who don't have, who doesn't really know how to give us good advice? Our peers. Think about the story of Rehoboam in the Old Testament. He had older counselors from his father Solomon. They said, if you lighten the taxes and are more reasonable with the people, they will accept you even though you're not Solomon. What did he do? He went and talked to his friends and he said, no, stick it to them. Make sure that they are going to be miserable and show your power. What did he do? He lost more than half his kingdom. He lost 10 of the 12 tribes. In the same way, it is easy for us to look for helpful advice from people who really are not well qualified to give us that advice. And instead, Paul is setting a pattern of saying, let those who have been more experienced in godliness have been more mature both in terms of age and in their duration of how long they've known God. Let them be the ones who are instructing those who are younger on how to live. And what specifically were they supposed to teach? Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. I'm just going to pause on those two right there for a moment. When it says to love their children and to love their husbands, at first glance it seems like, Paul, why are you saying this? Isn't any wife going to love her husband? Isn't any mother going to love her children? But the reality is we're all sinners. And there are days when your husband is difficult to get along with. And how do I know that? Because there are days... When every once in a while my wife points out, you're being difficult to get along with. Uh, yesterday afternoon was one of those times. Uh, and I was, uh, she sort of jokingly said something like, you know, maybe you need to go work in the yard for a little bit. But it was true. I was being difficult toward my family. Are you, as a wife, going to love your husband on the days when he is difficult? Part of the thing that will help you to do that is if other godly women, particularly those who are older than you, will do that. They will say, love your husband. They will say, love your husband, even if perhaps they've never been married. Because it doesn't say only older women who are married can say this. All of you who are older women who have experienced it yourself or who have... Um, uh, just no biblical truth, you are qualified to share that truth with the younger women and say, hey, this is what God says to do. Do it. You say, well, maybe I'm, I'm no longer married. I've lost my husband to death or some other circumstance. Then urge them to love their husbands because you know what you have had and lost until you are reunited with that person in God's presence. 
urge them to love their husbands. Then it says to love their children. Who doesn't love children? They're cute, they're adorable, they make messes all over your house, they're always asking you for things, they're uh, always wanting to be fed. There are days when as a mother you come to a point and you say, you know what? I want to just go hide somewhere away from everybody. In those times, a mom needs encouragement from other moms who have been there and done that and hopefully with God's help succeeded to say, love your children. And ultimately, all of these things that Paul is saying in this passage to Titus, he's saying because being a a father, being a mother, all of these things, you're not doing it for you. Remember what I said at the beginning? You are a frame for the gospel. It's not about you, it's about God. You are not parenting because of the reward that it gets you in in terms of hugs and affection and kind words from your kid. You're not doing it so that you can see them cross a platform someday or receive an award at their job or those sorts of things. You are doing it so that people will see the gospel and believe it and be pointed to God by the way that you and they are living. And that, I think, helps in those moments when you are overwhelmed not to quit Because it is something that God has called you to do, something that is for him, something that you are not alone in. You know, the secular concept that was paraded about probably 20 years ago was the idea that it takes a village to raise a child. And in some cases, it was because those villages were plagued with polygamy. Nobody knew who their parents were, so the kids just sort of got raised by whoever they happened to be around. That's not the biblical model. But it is a corruption of the biblical model in that there should be input in the lives of your kids, directly or indirectly, by other people in the church. Older men speaking truth to younger men, older women speaking truth to younger women. Our kids being under the teaching and example of others in the church. And all those things together help us to bring them up in a godly sort of maturity. What other things does it say that the older women are to teach the younger women to encourage them to do? To be sensible. The word sensible, we saw a moment ago, prudent. And, uh, you know, as a mom, probably prudence is not so much which route do I take when I'm bringing the kids home from school. It's more things like, is this really something that I should post on Facebook or say to someone at this moment? Is this something that is wise for me to be reading and filling my mind with? Is this something that honors God and will lead to good rather than evil? Being prudent, being wise. Sometimes there's an opportunity for older women in the church to teach younger women in the church about this because they haven't made right decisions and they know the bad consequences or sometimes it's because they have made the right decisions and they've seen the good results And sometimes it's just simply because this is what God says you ought to do. And we remind people of truth. Because that's the ultimate reason. Not because it works, but because God said to do it this way. 
to be pure. I trust this is not a problem for any of the, the, the moms in our church, but there is so much that threatens the purity of our following God in many different ways. You say, how does that, what does that look like? Well, it looks like my wife and I were watching a few episodes of a TV show from the 90s, and we thought, well, this seems like it's starting out okay, and then very quickly it was glorifying um, adultery, homosexuality, lying, murder, cheating, and we're like, we shouldn't be watching this. You say, well, I wouldn't watch things like that, but there are so many things that will draw you away from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. And it doesn't have to be all the things that sometimes preachers tend to, to get um, mainly focused on, like don't look at bad pictures and don't read bad books or watch bad movies. Purity can affect your lives, or lack of purity can come in in many other ways. When you start to tolerate small sin in your life, when you start to say, you know what, God really doesn't have to be my first priority, something else can be. Purity is not just about reading, watching, listening to the right things. Purity is about what honors God, God is holy, what is pleasing to him. I was talking with um, my eighth grade students in the Bible class that I teach at my kids' school, and we went through a passage, and I forget the passage at the moment, but the question that was raised to me by the passage was, we tend to ask ourselves, is this okay? Like, does God say I can't do it? But the context of the passage was, can I, in this activity, be giving thanks to God? So I think that that's a helpful test. Not the only test, but when you look at what you're doing, ask yourself this question. Can I give thanks to God in all honesty and sincerity for this thing in which I'm participating? And if I can't, I probably need to ask myself, is this something that I should be doing? Are we pure? Then it says workers at home. We see this same uh, concept in 1 Timothy 5.14. This is something that is pretty much looked down upon in our society today. So what do you do? I'm going to stay at home, Mom. Oh. There is nothing wrong with working at home and devoting your life to your children and your family. There's nothing inherently wrong with working outside the home as long as it doesn't become the thing that becomes uh, more important to you than your first and primary responsibility. There's a sense in which God has called husbands to provide for the family. There may be short times when that's not a reality because he's lost a job, something like that, and so the wife goes out and works for a time. But there are many families in which the reason that the husband and the wife both work is because of poor decisions about money or because of a sort of worldliness that says, I must have this and this and this to be happy, and that greed which is a form of idolatry, has resulted in those families not being able to raise their children well because they are never home. 
There's a balance. There's a challenge. Everyone is in a different spot in terms of money, in terms of opportunities, in terms of all those sorts of things. I'm not trying to be harsh or unkind or insensitive or any of those things, but there is a reality that God called men to take care of their families. If they don't do it, they're behaving worse than unbelievers. God called mothers to look after their children. If they neglect that responsibility, they're not honoring God. It says to be kind. Moms are always kind. They're always forgiving, right? No, there are moments when we are sinners. Instead of saying, please pick up your socks. I already asked you to do that. You say, why can you never do anything right? Is that kind? No. Is that the sort of way we talk sometimes? It's not just a mom thing. It's something all of us struggle with. But Paul is saying that older women ought to encourage younger women to be kind. And the next one is really unpopular in society today, to be subject to their own husbands. Husbands have a responsibility not to be idiots and not to be jerks. Wives have a responsibility in God's sight to obey the leadership of their husbands. That's not a popular concept. We want to say everybody does, nobody has to obey anybody else. Let me just give you a parallel example that shows that's not true. Have you ever worked for someone else? You have to follow what they say? Does that mean that you're worth less as a person because of it? No. But then when it comes to the marriage relationship, we say, well, if the wife obeys her husband, then... Uh, that's unfair to her. She's worth less. She's not sticking up for her own rights. The biblical pattern is God calls men to bear the heavy responsibility of leading their homes and doing so well. And God calls women to do the difficult job of following their husband's leadership even when they're wrong. Not wrong as in do this sin, but wrong as in that probably wasn't the best decision even when they maybe should have asked in a different way. Again, not being abusive, but sometimes a husband could be impatient with his wife and say, why didn't you do this and this and this? And there's still a responsibility for her to follow and to obey what he said. Again, not a popular concept in our society today, something that maybe some of you in this room struggle with saying, obey him, really? what it says and lest we say well that's only for younger women when you get older you don't have to do it anymore how are older women going to teach the younger women to do it if they're not doing it themselves right so that's something that I think that Paul is urging them to teach and what is the point of all these things it's not love your husband love your children be prudent be pure all these sorts of things just so you can be the perfect wife and perfect mother and never get what you want and all those sorts of things. That's not what he's saying. Why is he saying do this? Look at the last phrase. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Here's the bottom line. If you say, I know and I follow Jesus, and the Bible says, love your family, but you don't love your family. The Bible says, be pure, but you're not pure. The Bible says, follow your husband's leadership, and you're always saying, Here's how I'm not going to do what he wants me to do. You are dishonoring the word of God. You're like the frame around the picture, that it's a beautiful picture, 
And it's like the frame is a bunch of neon lights saying, hey, look at me, instead of the thing that they're supposed to be looking at. So is your life about making the gospel known, or is it about making yourself known? And say, okay, if I stopped there, I would not be doing service to the whole of the chapter, because he moves on, and in connection with what he said in verse 2, he also says the way that younger men are supposed to act. Urge the young men to be sensible. That word again, prudent. In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. He doesn't primarily here speak to husbands. He does that in other passages. Ephesians 5, for example. Primarily here... He's saying to Timothy, you be an example to them in the same way that the older men in the church are being an example to them so that the younger men will be godly men and be the right sort of people that they ought to be as husbands, as fathers, as just church members. And what things does he call them to do? Be prudent. Why are car insurance rates higher for men in their 20s than they are for women? Because we tend not to be prudent. There's all those uh, pictures on Facebook and Instagram and all of that. Why do women live longer than men? Because they're all like standing on ladders that are stacked in weird ways and all these sorts of things. It may not be popular to be sensible, to be prudent, to be wise in the way that you live. It may not be as fun as doing all the things that you think that you ought to do. But young men ought to be prudent. You ought to be wise. Part of it is what Proverbs says. If you're not wise, if you're naive, if you're foolish, you will make a mess of your life. And part of it is because it dishonors God, as we'll see in just a moment. Paul called Titus to be an example of good deeds. Why is it important to be an example of good deeds? Because good deeds, good works, is what God calls Christians to have in their lives. Not... I do good works, and then God says I can go to heaven because of the good works that I did, but rather, because I know Christ and he has saved me, God intended for me not just to say I'm going to heaven, but to say I'm becoming more like Christ, which means I'm doing things that please God. An example of good works. Purity and doctrine. This is a particular admonition for those who teach God's word because it is tempting to turn to all sorts of different sources that are not biblical in what they are saying. They may sound good, they may use Christian words, but they are not biblical because it's somebody's idea that they've gone and thrown a few verses on top of. We have to watch out for that sort of thing. Dignified. Again, dignified is not something that tends to be a descriptive word of guys in their teens and 20s and 30s, dignified. But if they don't start practicing it then, how are they going to be an example of it in verse 2? They're not. Sound in speech beyond reproach. Again, words can be a problem for men and women alike, but sometimes guys don't know when to shut up. And we say things that are stupid, that are foolish, that are sinful. And Paul says, 
your words should not be a basis for accusation. Into verse 8. So that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Again, going back to our picture. Here's the painting. Here's the picture. Can they say something bad about the picture because of the way that the frame looks? If you don't watch your words, if you get led astray by false doctrine, if you are undignified and foolish in the way that you live your life, then as a young man or as an old man, you will pull people's attention away and have a reason for someone saying, I don't want that because the thing around it doesn't match with it and, and makes it look bad. And then verses 9 and 10. And we tend to immediately jump to uh, the per, like employer, like boss and employee when we look at verses like this. But let's look at it first in its original context. Bond slaves should be subject to their own masters in everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. The reason I think we shouldn't immediately jump to boss and employee when we see a passage like this, just because this category doesn't exist in our society today, is we lose some of the force of what Paul is saying. He says in other places, Ephesians and Colossians, he says, masters ought to be the right sort of people toward those under them. And in the book of Philemon, which is the next page over, he says, this guy is now your brother, even though humanly speaking, according to legal condition, he is a slave. So treat him as a brother. But he's not talking to masters here. He's talking to those under authority. And he says, obey them. Do what they want. Don't argue about it. Don't steal from them. What is the temptation? What would have been the temptation for a slave whose master was perhaps difficult in some way? I'm not going to do what he says. I'm not going to do what he wants. I'm going to argue with what he tells me to do. I'm going to take what I want. I'm going to steal from him because I, he owes something to me because of the way he, that he's treating me. And Paul says, no, that can't be the way that you live. You have to show good faith. You have a responsibility and obligation that you have to lift up to. Why? So that you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You say, I follow God, and then you lie and steal and fail to obey and don't respect authority that God has put over you, and I'm not arguing for the rightness of slavery. I'm just saying it was a reality, a condition in which some people found themselves in Paul's day. And Paul says, in the context of the circumstance where you live, does your life match up to what the gospel teaches you about the way that you're supposed to live? Does it frame the truth of the gospel, or does it draw away from it? Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are under authority or over someone, you have a responsibility to give people the right picture of God. You can't be a frame that draws away from the picture. You can't be a frame that makes people not want the picture. You need to be a frame that makes people want the picture and look at the picture, not you, and come to know God.
And that is shown in the way that you set an example as an older person and the way that you parent as someone who still has kids at home. It is shown in the way that we live before God and others. And so we say, well, that wasn't, that wasn't just about mothers on Mother's Day. And the reality is that every passage that talks about mothers in the Bible is set in a larger context of this is one of many things that you are doing for God. And so we should honor mothers. We should honor fathers. We should honor grandparents, all of those sorts of things. And society affords us opportunities to do so, and we can create our own when it's not so-and-so's day. But we also need to realize that when we honor a mother who mothers well, <coughs> we are honoring the God that she serves. When she mothers well, she is honoring the God whose name she claims. And she, you, all of us together ought to live our lives in a way that presents the right picture of God and his truth to the world around us and to one another. So let's pray for God's help for us to do this well. Lord, for those who are older in the congregation this morning, I pray that you would help them to set a godly example, not to buy into the world's lie that you hit a certain age, you retire, and you no longer have any usefulness. It's just time to go and play and live for yourself. For those who are younger, help us to follow godly examples. For all of us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in a way that honors you and sets a good example of you to the world around us. In Christ's name, amen.